You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a Story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin. I'm happy to have you with me as I uncork Alan Mendenhall's story. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Hell, I'll even throw in TikTok. You can find us at all of those platforms at Uncorking a Story. Just a quick note on YouTube, that platform has been a really fantastic vehicle for show growth. And it's become a fun way for me to interact with all of you in the audience and for all of you to interact with each other. So I encourage you to please subscribe to Uncorking a Story on YouTube by going to YouTube and searching for Uncorking a Story and hitting subscribe. For you audio listeners out there, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I always like to remind my listeners that my goal with this show is always to bring aspiring authors some kind of inspiration from the published authors that I host on the show. And today, uh, Alan really does underscore a few things that we all need reminders of from time to time. Um, and really the, the first thing and one of the biggest things is the importance of patience. Um, look, I know we live in an impatient world and we sometimes want feedback on the things that we're writing faster than is healthy. And what I mean by that is that there is such a thing as showing your work to others too soon. Now, in Alan's case, outside of workshopping his story in a creative writing program, he waited until it was done before sharing it with others. And, you know, really that's because there's there are many pitfalls with sharing your work too soon. For one, your early readers don't have the full story. And because of that, they may unfairly criticize what they've read. You know, context really is everything. Um, and just a word of caution for you, if anyone is selling you editorial services and pushes you 
to send a work in progress. Really consider that a red flag. Um, I think that they probably just want your money. You know, any editor worth their weight in salt, whatever that means. Uh, I mean, is salt is salt valuable? I, I mean, maybe in the olden days, salt had a lot more value than it does now. All it does is raise my blood pressure. But um, any any editor worth their weight in salt, uh, or, or worth their weight in fees, maybe. Um, you know, will not want to see anything until it's finished, um, and maybe even not until you've reread it. You know, you may have considered, you know, your first draft done. Um, always a good idea to reread it, fix, you know, the grammar and spelling issues that you see before sending it to an editor. Um, so, you know, be patient with the process. Be patient. Um, you know, the other the other pitfall of sharing your work too early is the danger that the feedback you get will alter your original vision for your story and your plot. You know, somebody might tell you, hey, have you thought about, you know, doing this instead of doing that? And um, that may cause you to second guess where you think the story is going. And, and I always like to say that's OK. Like when you're when you're writing, you know, when you're writing from an outline, you know, it's OK to pivot from your initial intentions. But, but don't let an outside influence, um, you know, have a have a loud voice, you know, before the story is done. You know, don't second guess what you're planning to do from 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 an outsider. You know, if your heart tells you that, you know, you need to zig instead of zag, fine. But be patient, you know, and, and really the, the, the message here is be patient. Hold off on sending as much as you want that feedback. And look, I get it. You know, I'm writing something right now. I want to know if it's good, but be patient. Um, hold off on sending it until you feel that it's complete. So that those are the the, the sort of lessons around patience and the other lesson that that alan really hits on is persistence um and i i've said this before you know writing writing takes persistence you've got to do it every day you've got to keep coming back to it you know you've got to keep challenging yourself to to write better and sometimes you got to challenge yourself to finish you know sometimes people get in ruts i've look i've been in a rut for a while um but you've got to be persistent with it so patience persistence and publishing they all go hand in hand. So I hope that's valuable for you. Um, I want to uh, jump off my soapbox now. I'm going to jump off. And I'm going to introduce you to today's guest, Alan Mendenhall, whose story I'm about to uncork. Happy listening, everybody. Alan Mendenhall is a lawyer and university administrator in Alabama who has edited Southern Law Review for over a decade. He joins me today on Uncorking a Story to discuss his latest book, A Glooming Piece This Morning. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Alan. Well, thank you very much for having me. Alan, I'm excited to have you here. I know we have a lot to get through in this conversation, but I always like to start in the very beginning. So I'm going to ask you, where does your story as an author begin? First of all, I want to apologize for having a camera here while my screen is here. So I won't be looking at the screen the whole time. But, you know, I guess the story of when my writing began really is childhood. I experimented with stuff when I was really young. I can remember when I was four or five years old being in a family reunion and making one of those little books where you staple the pages together and you color pictures and using semicolons. I didn't know what a semicolon was or did, but I had seen them on a page and I thought they looked cool. So I put little semicolons in the the sentences I was writing. So I've always been interested in language and really began to write seriously as a young adult. Um, The book, the novel that I started uh, was in 2008 or so. It was when I was in law school. And so it didn't get published 
until 2023. And I wrote several books in between the time I began the novel and the time uh, the novel was published because I started writing academic books. I started writing works of nonfiction and those are easier to me to write. But uh, the novel, which is the shortest of all my books, took the longest to write and the longest to read print, which is kind of neat. Uh, it began with um, a short story that I had written. And it didn't really hang together because I introduced too many characters. And I didn't know what to do with it, so I just sat on it. And then I took a class, a criminal class in law school, and read a case involving statutory rape. And the fact pattern and philosophical issues at play in that case were so interesting to me that I had that eureka moment. And I realized, oh, now I have that story to develop. This is what I want my story to, to enter into is this legal case. But uh, I had that short story again, which was too long for a short story. And all those characters I introduced started falling into place now that I had that anchoring theme, that anchoring uh, legal setting of a trial. And so there's a trial case uh, that the narrative culminates in. And uh, I won't go into too much of that now, but that's where the story came about. So I'm curious, uh, you know, kind of being a storyteller from a young age. And I remember, too, like being a kid and, and putting together like those, uh, um, you know, little construction paper based books, you know, with maybe yarn as a binding, you know, something like that. Um, bridge me between like your your fascination with telling stories and then the the career choice to, to enter the legal profession. And, and I know that there was a lot of overlap between storytelling and, and the law, but I'm curious as to how you found a career in the law? Well, I read To Kill a Mockingbird as a young age and always wanted to be Atticus Finch. That's the, the simple version. Um, but the law isn't quite what I expected it to be in terms of day-to-day -day routine. However, the law is applied philosophy. It's really interesting how uh, even mundane issues touch upon grand themes that are sort of perennial. Um, writers uh, or lawyers do more writing than novelists. And over the course of their career as, as a, a lawyer, you are constantly writing briefs and filing um, many different documents. And so uh, you have to learn to write well. Um, as per telling a good story, that's absolutely indispensable to, in particular, trial practice. You have to take your uh, fact pattern and present it in the light most favorable to your client. And you have to choose which facts are important and which facts to emphasize because, um, you know, there's almost an infinite variety of facts from which to choose. And you have to select those to piece together, which, uh, which will be most helpful to your case. Um, so there's not a whole lot of difference, uh, between the narrative, um, the narrative creation of, uh, of a case at trial and the narrative creation of a novel, uh, the, the main difference is in style, how you write, you know, the, the legal writing is in general, unless you're a Supreme court justice and can become playful in general, if you're a practicing lawyer, you, you don't want your writing to stand out very much. You want your writing to be very plain. Uh, you want to write in short sentences. You don't want to be, uh, too. Uh, ostentatious with your diction or syntax or punctuation. 
Whereas uh, when you're writing a novel, you really want your writing to stand out. You want it to be something that chat GPT could not produce even in its best uh, stage. Yeah, well, that's that that's that's a story for another time, I think. But um, but you you bring up um, a, a, a solid point. I mean, and I've interviewed a lot of lawyers on this show who have gone on to, you know, have pretty successful careers as uh, as writers and novelists. Um, you know, I'm curious, you mentioned that this this book is sort of the shortest one in terms of number of pages, maybe number of words, but the longest one to write. I'm curious, what what was the learning curve like for you? And, you know, kind of making that move from, you know, writing all the sort of nonfiction stuff that you've written to, to writing fiction. Well, I actually I have a Ph.D. in English, so I've always been a literary person. I've read who knows how many novels and I studied literature professionally and um, I've always loved the written word. I've always loved fiction. I guess mainly the issue is finding time and inspiration, figuring out what was going to happen in the book. I mean, I had this trial scene to begin with and that short story, but uh, that's not enough to make a novel, maybe, maybe a novella if you string it out. So I had to figure out what it was that I wanted to tell and how I wanted to make the story uh, significant. So I, I knew um, certain things. I, I knew that, you know, I'm a Southerner. I wanted uh, to invoke the Southern Gothic. And so I wanted to deal with um, themes of sort of gentility versus the grotesque. Uh, I had this notion that the story was going to be a retelling of Greek tragedy, and then it became a retelling of, of Romeo and Juliet. Actually, the, the phrase of Romeo piece this morning comes from uh, Romeo and Juliet. So I uh, started playing around with themes of fate versus free will. And I really wanted a, a story that was morally ambiguous. I didn't want there to be any obvious good guys or bad guys. I wanted the characters to be complex, and I wanted the town itself uh, to be complex. And so this was uh, interesting because the, the longer the, the story became and the more I added to it, I would go back and think of uh, something would strike me as, oh, I should have done this here. And because I took a long time to write it, I, I was able to go back into, say, chapter three and add this or that, or go back into uh, the introduction and add a bit of foreshadowing. Whereas if I had tried to rush it through, I would have missed all those opportunities. So although it is the shortest book, there is a lot packed into it. Actually, this is this is the cover here. You can see it, 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 and it's pretty thin and it's a nice little paperback. It's uh, easy to hold and carry around in a suitcase or whatever. You know, along the way, along this journey, um... Did did you see get any help uh, along the way in terms of writing groups or yeah, mentors, editors? What was um, what was your you know kind of quote unquote help help project process like? I really didn't have any until the novel was completed. And when the novel was done, I sent it to my friend Lenore Ely, who uh, is not a literature person. She's a historian by training and got her PhD at Johns Hopkins, and I had her read it. And uh, got some feedback from her. Then I sent it to everybody who wrote a little blurb uh, in my uh, novel. So Susan Cushman, Ren McClain, Johnny Barnhart, Joy Ross Davis, Julie Cantrell, Shuli Kaywood. Those, those, those women all read my book. And the one thing that I wanted to make sure I did was have only female readers. And that's because I was unsure how 
a female audience would receive a book with statutory rape at the center of um, this, the story. So you've got an 18-year-old having a sexual relationship with uh, an, an underage uh, female, and that that's sort of a, a, a dangerous topic to undertake. And so I wanted the feedback of, of, of female readers to make sure that this went over okay um, from their perspective. And they were all very supportive and thought that it did. Um, again, you're dealing with uh, Southern Gothic, so you're already dealing with grotesque and uh, odd themes. And, uh, you know, you don't want to just avoid doing that to try to sanitize the text or something like that. Um, but, the, the you know, the book does deal with very serious themes, like the burden of violence, racism, poverty, industrialization. There are themes like individualism versus collectivism. Um, it's, it's, it's all in there. And uh, I really didn't seek any sort of outside help until I was done. And that's mainly because if I put the, the, the chapters down for six months and came back, I would hate what I saw. And so I would revise, revise. And I didn't want other people to see it in its sort of naked stages. I, I wanted it to be fully cloned before it saw uh, other eyes. Why, why was it so important for you to, to write about these themes um, in this novel? Well, I wanted the novel to be more than just uh, entertainment. I wanted it to have um, some sort of deeper meanings and uh, deeper import. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I can see when I've gone back and reread it, which I have done a few times, even in um, its final form, I can find places where I was trying to do stuff but I had forgotten that that was what I was trying to do at the time. And that I can remember, oh, yeah, I remember trying to do this here. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to write literary fiction. I, I didn't want to write just any old book that uh, people would read and enjoy and then throw down. I wanted to write something that required some thought and that forced people to think. And I think that's why I um, worked really hard to make it morally ambiguous. I wanted people to not be sure what to think of certain characters, in particular, the narrator himself. Everybody sort of falls for the narrator because it's the person telling the story, and this is a first-person narrator, and everybody just um, tends to ally himself or herself with that person who's telling the story without the first step of asking, hey, should I really rely on the veracity or authenticity of the person who's telling me the story? And I think um, coming to the book at the very beginning with uh, a little bit of suspicion toward the narrator, whose uh, name is Cephas, um, will enrich the reading experience. Well, there you go. We'll plant that seed for uh, for the audience. Um, what, did, what did you learn about yourself during this process? Well, I would say, if anything, it was less about any, any sort of introspective philosophical probing or something like that, and more about uh, tenacity or that type of character i could have given up on this novel dozens of times whereas when i work on my academic work i'm diligent in, in the sense that i um, work through it and write very quickly and work very hard and i go from beginning to end this one was more of trial and error fits and starts and that is not how I operate. So I guess I learned that I can operate in a different way. And I think I learned that maybe even 
I do better when I work that way. It just requires patience. And I'm a very impatient person. Um, it's one of my biggest faults. And I had to be patient to finish this book. I couldn't rush it out. It wasn't until about 2019 when I realized, oh, this thing's actually coming together now. I really should do that thing where I rush and, and trying to finish. Um, but I'm glad that I didn't try to do that earlier because I wouldn't have um, cultivated the voice I was looking for in my narrator. I wouldn't have explored some of the themes that the book, book explores, and it would have been premature and not very good. You know, I like to uh, kind of reflect on a, what, what a lot of authors have told me and even what I've, I've experienced myself uh, having written a few books. Um, patience and persistence are very important uh, for publishing. <laughs> so it's like it's like the three P's, you know, patience, persistence and publishing. They all kind of they're all a little bit dependent on each other. Yeah, that makes sense. And the one thing I was not willing to be patient about was doing the whole find your agent in New York City and do all that. You know, I, I've I've written enough books already. I've done. I I didn't need to go through the whole rigmarole. I, I wrote this book as much for me as for anybody else, and uh, mostly for an imagined posterity that might one day pick up the book and they go, oh, "Wow, this was good. We never heard of this guy, but wow, this is a good book. Who knows?" But uh, I wasn't writing for commercial success or to see my, my book lined up on uh, the bookshelves of the Atlanta airport or something. Um, and it's just not, not quite that kind of book. Uh, you know, people don't go read James Joyce or Virginia Woolf or William Faulkner or whatever. This isn't that type of high modernism. It's not that, that complex of a, of, of a text. But, um, but at any rate, it does require some thought and some engagement and... Uh, you know, it, it is short, so you can just sit there and, and read it on the beach in a day if you've got the time. But uh, I like to think that it requires or will um, at least provoke some sustained reflection. You know, you bring up an interesting point also in terms of, um, you know, challenges to the you know traditional publishing industry. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you are a published author yourself in terms of, uh, you know, uh, nonfiction work, um, you know, you're a known commodity. And the fact that you chose to sort of go the independent route for this novel, um, to me, you know, is shows a threat to, you know, the, the way that books traditionally get published in terms of finding that agent going who sells it to a publishing house. And then, you know, two years later, you're still in revisions. But um, were, were you thinking about the business side of this at all? Or were you just like hoping no. to just... Uh, well, I, I went with, so I used to, I edited Southern Literary Review for over a decade. And in that time, I got to know several editors, several publishers. And one was uh, Livingston Press, which is an imprint of the University of uh, West Alabama Press. And that's who published the book. And I kind of like having the University Press publish the book because I always enjoyed reading the University of Press, not, uh, University Press novels that were sent to us when I was editor of Southern Literary Review. If, if I had some I won't just go name a bunch of publishers, but you know, if I had some big name New York publisher and they sent some, sent me something that was Southern lit, a lot of it was just sort of shallow, um, and I just I didn't enjoy it very much. It was a lot of uh, a lot of dialogue and a, a little less. Um, I'll just say philosophy is just a, is just a convenient word, but um, but I always liked the books that were coming out by university presses. And I could tell the authors were trying to do something interesting and 
there was no easy way to categorize what they were doing. They were always doing something very different. And I thought, well, you know, I, I probably get academic, more academic uh, credit in a sense for, for writing the book with the university press. Um, whereas if I wrote it for somebody else, maybe I wouldn't get that sort of academic credit. So there was that too. Yeah. So there you go. They were, they're a known commodity for you. Um, and it seems like, uh, it all worked out well. What what is uh, reaction to the uh, to the book been amongst your peers so far? Well, so far, uh, nobody's been any um, bold enough to tell me to my face they didn't like it. So uh, I guess that's a good sign. I don't know. Um, maybe maybe people are just being polite and, and haven't told me the truth. But I actually um, I, I've gotten very uh, good responses so far. And interestingly enough. Um, a lot of my friends and people from my social life and people from my professional life even never touched any of the other books I read. They sort of were aware that I had written books and uh, never really bothered to go take the time to buy them or read them. But now I'm hearing from people who unexpectedly are buying the book and people are sending me text messages and linked book and they're people that aren't readers. They're, they, they don't read books but they are willing to go read a novel, whereas they wouldn't go read some of my, um, you know, a, a book on Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. or something. Um, they, they weren't going to go read that, but they, they would read a novel. Um, whether they'll remain my friends after they're done with the book remains to be seen. <laughs> uh, so is there a, a follow-up in mind? I mean, not necessarily a, a sequel to this, but is, is there a, a book number two uh, uh, from, coming from you, Alan? Yeah, it crossed my mind. I, I read a, another thing happened. I read a, a case and it involved a murder and it sort of inspired, um, I wouldn't say a, an entire plot, but it got it got that hamster wheel ro- rolling. I'll put it that way. And then it occurred to me, actually, in another interview like the one we're having right now, oh, what if this um, Magnolia County of mine that I've created in this fictional Andalusia were my Yachna Batavna, you know, this is my Faulkner-esque setting. And then I thought, well, it'd be a lot easier to write a, a sequel or at least a companion text because I don't have to invent new architecture. I don't have to invent new buildings. I don't have to invent new locations. And I can borrow from some characters and build out some characters and maybe tell different stories from other perspectives and maybe allude Um sort of subtly to things that happened in a gloomy piece this morning. And so the answer is maybe to your question is maybe, um, hopefully, but, uh, I'm not sure yet if I am able to, to take that case and run with it this time, I think I'm going to be more deliberate about plotting out maybe in a sort of a um, timeline of what, what the story is going to do so that I don't have to wait 10, 12, whatever, how many years it was to figure that out. Yeah, that's, Adds a trick the, that that does work, you know, outlining it. And not that the outline has to be handcuffs because outlines are not handcuffs. I mean, if you do it the right way, it just, you know, tells you, you know, where the story's going and maybe what the big beats are. But, um, you know, I, I love the idea of writing within the same universe. And and I've done that because you're right. I mean, it is easier than than having to transport, you know, people to a new world. And you can have some fun with it, too, because you're referencing, you know, or, you know, from, I put my marketing hat on. It's like you're almost cross-selling a little bit to, um, yeah. you know, what yeah. you've done um, in the past. And it's such a convention of Southern literature already that you're sort of signaling the genre just 
by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one way I like to get to know my guests a little bit more is by asking some uh, pop culture questions. So nothing too, uh, nothing too crazy here, but I'm curious, Alan, when, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Oh gosh. I was uh, recalling the other day about how I had those old, uh, Batman episodes, not the cartoons, but the the actors. I couldn't even tell you who they were. Well, I can tell you but who they are. They they are. Um, oh my gosh, uh, Robin was Burt Ward. Yes, and, and um, oh god, Batman was uh, whose name should be on the tip of my tongue. Um, it'll come to me before the end of this interview. Well, that I would have those recorded on uh, just the little VHS things. I would stick them in and watch those, and then one day I stuck those in. And my dad had recorded like golf tournaments or something. He had taped over them and I was devastated. But, you know, I did that. My parents were pretty strict about what I would watch. I was the first child. By the time they got to my sister, kind of all the rules were thrown out the window and she could do whatever she wanted to watch whatever she wanted. But like, I wasn't even allowed to watch He-Man and I was barely allowed to watch G.I. Joe. And um, so, you know, I, I watched a lot of sports on TV. That was okay for me to watch. Um, my dad, interestingly enough, would always basically force me to sit there and watch things like Unsolved Mysteries and Rescue 911. And I can remember being like six years old and he was watching, making me watch the show on schizophrenia. And uh, they were these people that were, they were reenacting what it was like to hear all these voices. And I went to bed that night thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm hearing voices. I, and I thought I was schizophrenic when I was just petrified is terrified out of my mind and my dad liked to scare us into obedience basically and they, it really worked because you know i learned okay well we don't dump a bunch of gasoline on sticks and throw a match in there because we're gonna get burned like one kid did in one episode or rescue 911 you don't go down to the drain at the bottom of the pool and mess around with it because you might get stuck down there and drown you know so i don't know it's hard to really summarize what it was I, I, I did as a kid. I, I was just sort of a frolicking kid who played outdoors a lot. I, I read a lot um, and watched TV when I could, but uh, I wouldn't say I had like a go-to thing that I was just obsessed with until maybe middle school. I got a, an odd obsession with Wyatt Earp and Tombstone and um, all those figures from the West. But uh, you know, up to that point, it was just one thing to another. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, I'm curious being a, you being a lawyer. Um, did you have any any favorite legal dramas um, that that you like to watch? Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, of course, from your childhood, but uh, later on in life. Is there one that comes to mind that you could point to and say, hey, you know, that, that that's actually some worthwhile legal drama? Actually, no, I, I typically don't enjoy watching uh, uh, legal legal dramas. Uh, to be honest, I, I, I you know, I. It, I prefer something that's, if they're going to touch on law, you know, it's, it's not, it's not in a way that for, they're not looking for verisimilitude or something like that. They're just, um, it's sort of a sub, a subtext to the, the main story, but they're not trying to centralize a, a trial or something like that. It's ironically, since that's what I did in my book, but um, I, I don't necessarily like that on, on television programs or anything like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I was hoping you'd say L.A. Law so we could talk about <laughs> Corbin Bernstein and Harry Hamlin a little bit. Uh, <laughs> what about, um, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show are aspiring authors themselves. I'm curious, what, what advice would you give to an aspiring author? You know, maybe somebody who uh, 
is not living their uh, dream life right now and, and thinks the, the, the key to uh, being happy is getting, getting a book published, what would you say to them? Well, I would say, first of all, and, and this, this goes to your lack of happiness, I, I actually don't think happiness is a great pursuit. I think that American culture is obsessed with happiness and that the whole point of happiness is that it's a state that is not always attainable. You can't have constant happiness. You have to have sadness. You have to have anger. You have to explore the range of emotions. And that happiness may be a state that you can enjoy for some period of time, but it's a temporary thing. If, it, if, if you're constantly feeling happiness, then it's probably not happiness that it is you're feeling because that's a state that you only get to enjoy sometimes. I actually think probably the healthiest state for humans to be in is one of melancholy. Just that slight sadness because it keeps you pensive. It keeps you reflective. And it tends to be something um, that you experience, you know, after the loss of loved ones or when you look back on people from your past that you miss on maybe uh, long ago loves or whatever it is. But that that sense of melancholy, whether it's in the form of nostalgia or some other more uh, present form, is very healthy. And I think people are much more mindful on other people when they're in that state of mind. So having said that, my advice for authors <laughs> is a little different, which is just keep, I mean, keep working at it. We talked about diligence and tenacity earlier. I mean, that's, that's all I can really say is do that and, and read the authors that you like the most and figure out what it is they're doing that makes you like them. Analyze their paragraphs, um, their sentences one by one by one and figure out what is it about the syntax that appeals to me. Well, when that passage about this woman came out that I keep thinking about, go back and reread the passage until it, until it becomes not special. Read it over and over and over again until you've broken it down and it is just a formula. And then figure out, oh, so this is what they were doing with that language. I wonder why that stuck out. And then learn to play with language yourself in that way. Yeah, I always like to say, um, and this is no disrespect to anybody who's been through an MFA program, and I think they are very valuable, but... I think some of the best training authors can get or aspiring authors can get is just by reading a lot and, yeah. and being conscious of what you're reading and being critical of what you're reading. Um, that's 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 going to get you uh, pretty far down uh, the, the road. Um, and in many cases, you know, more so than than an MFA can can get you. Well, you said one thing that makes me want to give a little bit of credit where credit is due. So I want to rewind back to the thing about when you asked me about people who read the text. Now, I did float a couple chapters of this novel in Chantel Acevedo's class when I was in my PhD program in Auburn. I took a creative writing class. And so she did go through some of that work. So I did get some early feedback then. And so she does deserve some credit for that. In particular, I can recall I had written a few lines in Spanish and she was like, this is, this is completely butchered. You need to fix the Spanish novel. And so she fixed that for me. Oh, very good. I'm glad uh, glad we got that uh, covered up. I mean, out of curiosity, though, like how important was her, you know, support or even commentary for you to, to put a little wind in your sails to keep going? Uh, it was very it was very helpful. So when I um, first workshopped that chapter with the other students in the class, they said, "This is like this like no no child talks like this. This is really this is well written, but they're." There is no child with a voice like this. And I thought, 
Why do they think this is a child? Uh, you know, this is all written in past tense. Why do they think it's a child? I mean, it's the, the events are taking place during childhood, but what makes them think that this is like, you know, Huck Finn or something? And, it, it, you know, it, but it, it wasn't. And I sort of reached out to Chantel after the class. I was like, no, what did I do to get people that impression? She, and she sort of said, they, there's not like, it's pretty obvious to me that this was not a child. This is just somebody looking back at childhood. I have no idea why anybody thought that this was a child. So I, I wouldn't worry about that commentary at all. So that was affirming. Um, and that, that felt good. And, and Chantel was in, in general, uh, an affirming person and very talented person. Um, I've sort of lost touch with her. I did send her a copy of the book um, in the mail and, and touched base briefly, but uh, she was, she was a very, um, a very helpful uh, instructor and a very good person. Um, last question is uh, always one of the more challenging ones for some people to answer. Um, not everybody, but Alan, if, if you can go back in time and whisper some words of advice into the younger Alan Mendenhall, what would you tell your younger self? Oh gosh, it wouldn't have to do with writing. <laughs> I've, I've had a, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of missteps along the way and I would have loved to have avoided some of those. And, um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think it would be, again, unrelated to writing, it would be uh, to cultivate relationships that are meaningful with those people you really love and, um, and to do so before it's too late. I mean, life is just so short. The older you get, and I'm still, I'm 40 years old, but maybe it's because I'm 40, I'm hitting that milestone where I'm thinking uh, more deeply about, you know, the next 40, if I can even make, make it there. But uh you know, when I look back on life and the things that made it special, it wasn't, you know, stuff. It was people. And so finding the people that really are worth building relationships with and finding the ones that probably are, you know, there are a lot of people that I got to know because I thought they could help me or I thought they could do this or I thought they could do that. Or, you know, when you're a kid, because they're cool or whatever it is, there there's some adult version of, I want to hang out with these people because they're cool. Everyone's gone. But, uh, you know, hanging out with people, cultivating relationships with people because, um, because you want to, because they add to your life and they, um, add fulfillment to your everyday experience and, and you reciprocate. I think when you have those types of relationships with people, you tend to be that type of person for the other person as well. Yeah. Very good. Very good. I'm glad you didn't say you'd, uh, Advise your younger self to buy Apple computer. Uh, <laughs> well, the, yeah, that's right. Buy, go back to like 1989 and buy stock in Yahoo or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, where where can people learn more about you, Alan? Do you have a website? Are you active on social media? Can you share any handles with us? Yeah, it's uh, my name is uh, Alan Mendenhall, A L L E N, and Mendenhall M E N D E N H A L L. And my website's just www.alanmendenhall.com. My Twitter handle is at Alan Mendenhall, so that's pretty simple. Um, I'm on Instagram, and that's uh, Literary Lawyers, my name there. But it's not too, too too difficult to find me out there. All right. And then where can people buy a copy of A Glooming Piece this morning if they're so inclined? Yeah, the easiest place probably is just go straight to Amazon. Um, but you can link to it through my website. You can buy it from the publisher's website. That's Livingston, Livingston Press, which is an imprint of the University of West Alabama Press. Um, so those are all, um, 
Those are all options. All right. Very good. Well, Alan, uh, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.